From the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our first reading this morning is from Psalm 1. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path that sinners tread, or sit in the seat of scoffers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither. In all that they do, they prosper. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Eliza. Before I turn to our second scripture this morning, I'd like to invite any children pre-K through third grade that we might have who want to go to godly play to come meet Miss Katie. We'll see you again after worship. Have a great time. Now we turn to our second lesson, which is lectionary for today from Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 30 to 37. Here again, God's word for you and for me. The disciples and Jesus went on from there and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him, and three days after being killed, he will rise again. But the disciples did not understand what Jesus was saying and were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum. And when Jesus was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But the disciples were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them. And taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, from these old texts, speak a new word to us this morning, so that when we leave here, we will be better prepared to listen for you and to answer your call for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. For some weeks now, we've been in a sermon series remembering our shared values and thinking together about our call to be the church. So a word about this time we're in. In the last 18 months or whatever it's been, I've heard more times than I can count that we are living in unprecedented times. 
Nod your head if you've been hearing that phrase, yes, or maybe even saying that phrase. It's become a bit of a catch-all or a buzzword to capture that things feel uncertain and that we don't like to be in times that are uncertain. We'd prefer to move on through them. I saw a cartoon a couple of weeks ago that showed a woman and a man sitting in sort of twin chairs in their living room, and she has the newspaper open in front of her, and she turns to her husband and says, sometimes I wish we could go back to living in precedented times. True story. Whenever we face a transition, we're eager to move through it. We even sometimes remember the past wistfully or through rose-colored glasses simply because we know what already happened. But in many ways, these are precedented times. The chaos and disruption we're feeling now are current versions of chaos and strife that people have faced throughout history. We just have to look at the Bible to see that the values we've been talking about these last weeks have always been our values through all kinds of times before now. This week, on the last of this series, we focused on our call to restorative relationships. Our scriptures this morning remind us that our relationships with God and each other are not right. And making them right is going to require us to do something different. Psalm 1 that Eliza just read so beautifully gives us a picture of how a right relationship with God should go. The psalmist talks about the congregation of the righteous. The righteous will be like trees planted by streams of life-giving water. They'll yield fruit and not wither. The Lord watches over the righteous and they prosper. The righteous are not like the wicked. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I hear the word righteous, it has a negative connotation for me because the first thing I think of is self-righteous people I've known. Maybe you've known some. I'll wait a minute and you can see who pops into your mind's eye. Folks who think they're right all the time and aren't afraid to tell you. People who think the choices they've made are norms and they judge everyone else against them. People who make sure that everyone knows that they're helpful and needed and good. But that's not what God is looking for in relationship with us. Righteousness, that is to say, right relationship with God, is not that self-righteousness. It isn't thinking we have a deeper faith or we know God's ways better than somebody else. It isn't showy. It isn't even making our piety visible. What makes someone righteous is humility. The righteous follow God's instructions. They seek God as their guide, knowing that they need to learn. They meditate on God's word day and night and take delight in following God. Righteous aren't out front being seen and bragging. They're in God's word learning. Last week, our executive presbyter, Aisha Brooks Johnson, was our guest preacher. If you haven't seen that sermon or listened, I commend it to you. She gave us a challenge for a new season, and one of the three pledges we made was to cling to Christ. I love that quick phrase, and it's easy to remember because of the C's, cling to Christ. 
It means that to get our relationship right with our Lord, we have to remove all the barriers between us. And when we do, as the psalm tells us, our lives bear fruit like trees planted by streams of water. Now, long before this current pandemic and this time of polarization, that's another thing we hear a lot, how polarized our country is right now. Long before this moment, humans needed to right our relationships. We see this with the first disciples who are, of all things, bickering in front of Jesus. In this scene, Jesus is trying to prepare them for his death, and they don't understand what he's saying. This is a recurring theme. If you read Mark's gospel, Jesus repeatedly tries to teach, and the disciples repeatedly are too focused on themselves to learn. So even though they're there with him physically, standing next to him, journeying to Capernaum in a house, they still aren't in right relationship with their Lord or each other. Mark tells us that as they walk, Jesus is giving them some pretty important information that he's going to be betrayed and killed and will rise again. But the disciples don't understand and they're too afraid to ask. Maybe some of us have had that experience ourselves. So what do they do? They carry on with what they wanted to talk about the whole way, which is apparently not about Jesus and the coming season after his death. They're arguing about who among them is the greatest. There's such a sharp contrast in this scene as Jesus describes the ultimate self-sacrifice, the disciples are being self-important. As he tells them that he's going to give up worldly status, they jockey for status among themselves. I had the chance to share in a Bible study a couple of weeks ago with some of our neighbors who came to community ministries, and we studied this morning's scripture from Mark together that afternoon. So after we'd read it, I asked the group what they thought was going on in this scene with the disciples arguing. A gentleman named James started to shake his head like this. He gave sort of a low chuckle. So I asked him what was on his mind. He said he thinks what's happening is that the disciples were fighting about who was Jesus's favorite. And then he imagined for us all there how this argument might have gone. He said, maybe one of them said, well, I was with Jesus from the beginning. I came with him from the fishing boat. And then maybe another of the 12 said, well, I was there with a basket when he fed all those people, loaves and fish. And what James imagined was the things these disciples might say that would give them better standing, make them more valuable, more important, get them closer to Jesus. I think he was probably right. Here are the disciples. They're called to service, and they're called to service together, no less, but they're arguing about who's the best disciple, which one most deserves to be there, which one maybe is going to be the line leader. My new friend James was shaking his head because there is no being the best disciple. There is no best status or most deserving in a life of following Jesus. And yet, in the thousands of years that have passed since this scene, we have seen over and over again how much we want to be the greatest, the most knowledgeable, most powerful, most deserving, most right. 
we compete with each other all the time and are even willing to put someone else down if it means keeping standing for ourselves. It happens in our families, it happens in our workplaces. Whenever we feel our position threatened, what do we do? We position ourselves above somebody else. Whenever someone comes at us and they disagree with us, what do we do? We dig in to defend what we think. And it seems when we receive new information, like these disciples, we're often too afraid or too proud to hear it and learn it because it's so much easier to believe that we're already experts. On the public scale, if we zoom out and think about this dynamic in communities and in our nation, we don't have to look far to see how broken our human relationships are right now. It feels like every subject is ripe for a fight. Everyone is dug in in their opinions. Thanks to the internet, everyone is an expert about everything all the time. And we're seduced by the idea of our own rights. In just the last few weeks here in our state, we've seen this play out in communities. We've seen reports of school board meetings that had to be shut down because they devolved into screaming matches about kids and masks and parents threatened members of the school board. We heard recently a couple of weeks ago from Dr. Kathleen Toomey, who's our top public health official in our state, that free COVID vaccination sites have had to be shut down because protesters were threatening the healthcare workers who were there to serve. Now, when people are screaming at each other at the school board meeting and threatening the nurses who would try to care for them, it seems clear that our relationships are not right. Our desire to be the greatest has run amok. Now, those are just a few examples. We could pick any. Vaccines and masks and public health are just top of mind in the day. We can see through any lens what happens to a community when people start to believe that their own knowledge is ultimate and their own opinions are authority. So when the disciples head down that road, when they're arguing about being greatest, Jesus does not take the bait. He does not mediate between them or pick a favorite. He doesn't let them carry on thinking that anyone is more important than another. That kind of thinking gets us to a culture where some people think their rights trump other people's needs. In classic Jesus form, he doesn't engage their argument at all. Instead, he calls them to him and teaches by showing. With a simple act of bringing a child in front of them, he blows up all their ideas about greatness. He tells them whoever wants to be first is going to have to get used to being last and servant of all. He hugs the child, takes the child up into his arms and says, whoever welcomes such a child in my name welcomes me. So Jesus isn't saying it explicitly, but he's calling the disciples out in this moment, pulling them away from their argument and competing and reorienting them to their call to service in his name because none of them is the greatest. That entire conversation doesn't matter. Greatness and importance and being right are not their calling. Jesus reminds them what is their calling. He shows them this child, someone who had 
no standing, no value in the Greco-Roman world. He shows them one that is vulnerable and powerless and in need, who represents all the others who are vulnerable and powerless and in need across time. And he tells them that if they want standing with him, it will come only from welcoming such a one. Somebody who, in the words of Professor Clifton Black, the disciples have mistakenly regarded as beneath them. So being in right relationship with our Lord means we'll have to put down our pursuit of being first. We'll have to get comfortable with being last and servant. It means we'll have to get into right relationship with the very people we think are below us on whatever greatness scale we're using. We will have to welcome them, and maybe even harder, we'll have to be welcomed by them. Sounds very beautiful and kind of churchy, doesn't it? To try to fix the broken relationships of our world with welcome. But this is, of course, harder than it sounds. In fact, sometimes it feels like we're so far apart that it will be impossible to get into right relationship. I read an article earlier this year by Ann Applebaum. She's a staff writer for The Atlantic, and its title was Coexistence is the Only Option. The author is describing how our country might move through this current state of polarization. But as I read, I was most struck by how much brokenness we have come to accept. We accept that some things are always going to be an argument, and therefore it's okay to keep on arguing. Or we don't argue because we have chosen to avoid some people altogether. Nod your head if you've heard this happening. Maybe at work or maybe in your neighborhood gathering, maybe at our own Thanksgiving tables. Christians are called to something more than mere coexistence. Coexisting implies that everyone just holds their current positions and finds a way to exist in the same space. And then no one would have to do the work to actually be reconciled. But that is not what Jesus is teaching us. He doesn't let the disciples carry on arguing about their importance. He needs them to come together to do their work, to create a shared future after he's gone. So it just won't work for them to agree, to disagree, and keep on thinking that each of them is the best. So how does Jesus model for us a way into right relationship? First, While the disciples have argued about standing, Jesus does not engage that argument. No one wins. No one is declared the greatest. What a radical idea for people who are living in a culture that feels like it's always approaching a boiling point. What if we declined to argue? Second, when the disciples have put themselves at odds on opposite sides... Jesus reminds them that they're on the same side. If we look at countries who've experienced political war, where different groups each think they're not only right, but more valuable as human lives than other groups, reconciliation has often come when those very people who are fighting realize that they have a shared future. Their fighting will impact what is available for them and their children and their children's children in the future. We, like these disciples, share a common calling. 
Jesus shuts down the bickering by reminding the disciples that they're in this work together. They're called as a group to welcome in his name. What if we got on the same side too? Because whatever our politics or our power, our opinions, our certainty, we are called to create a shared future. And finally, Jesus reorients the disciples to himself. While they're worrying about being important, he reminds them that God is their authority, their only authority. We would do well to check ourselves too. When we're feeling threatened or insecure or defensive of our positions, where are we placing our trust? In ourselves or in our Lord? At that same community ministries Bible study I mentioned earlier, I asked the group, what makes it so hard to do this welcoming that Jesus is so clearly telling us to do? Fear and pride, answered the gentleman named James, who is my new favorite theologian. I think he's right. We argue about greatness, we demean each other, put each other down. We allow our relationships to be broken because of fear and pride. Fear of losing the standing we think we have and pride in thinking that we deserve it. So if we want to be restored in our relationships with God and each other, and if we believe, as I really think we do, that God does not want us to be in a polarized culture, self-concerned and ready to fight, but is instead calling us into a shared, different future together. Let's ask ourselves, where in our lives are we adamant that we are right? Who have we cast as the adversary on the other side of that argument? And where do we feel our status being threatened? If we're honest about those answers, we'll find that those are the places where we're arguing and defending our own greatness at the expense of our relationships. This morning, friends, we remember that Jesus is not in that fray. He's not helping us defend our greatness. He's calling us away from those arguments. Jesus is calling us out of self-obsession and reminding us that we're on the same side, called together to do his work. Jesus is still putting in front of us all the people represented by that little child he embraced so long ago. Sisters and brothers were called to welcome and to love. May we hear that call and be restored to God and to each other. Amen.
Let us pray. Holy God, for the new children joining this church family, we give you thanks. What a joy it is to see the life and spirit of new babies in our midst. Be with these families and all the families of this church community who are navigating parenthood in this very strange season. And as we get to know these babies, help us to share your truth with them. Help us to welcome these children in your name, showering them in your love and grace. All too often, we're reminded of the ways that our society encourages us to alienate and make enemies of folks who think differently from us. Help us to embody a bit of your grace. Grant us the mercy to love one another as you call us, striving always to be unified in your name and in your calling. May we always revere you, our Lord, and serve you in sincerity and faithfulness. You call us to live into your justice and kingdom among us. Help us to clothe ourselves not in hate or fear, but in compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Help us to know that in you, no relationship is beyond repair. Give us the wisdom to see the ways that we have harmed others. Grant us the courage to reach out to those we've harmed and put love before our ego. As we trust in you, may that trust lead us to continually seek renewal and reconciliation with our neighbors. Help us destroy the walls we have built between us and them. Open our eyes and our hearts to see your image in every person we meet. And with all the faithfulness of the saints through the ages, we come together to pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples praying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.